This is Brie. You are listening to Brief, and this is episode two of Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. We are covering parts two and three today and going over themes. Okay, part two is called The Sieve and the Sand, and it opens with Montag reading. All day he reads as they sit in the hall. At one point they hear something at the door, and it sounds like a dog sniffing, and Montag assumes it's the hound, but they just ignore it and it leaves. But he keeps reading and Mildred gets super frustrated and she's like, books aren't people. You read and I look around, but there isn't anybody here. Because in her mind, she's, she's so used to watching the parlor walls that it just doesn't feel real. These books feel fake because they're not people. She can't look at them. She can't interact with them. And she's worried about the firemen coming to their house and burning her family. They call her family in the parlor walls if they find out that they have all these books. So Montag goes into this huge rant and tells Mildred how she overdosed and how they brought in that big snake and they took everything out of her. Anyway, and then he keeps talking about the woman that they burned in that house. And he's kind of just losing it. He talks about the bombers in the sky every day and how they've won two atomic wars since 1990. And then he's like, the rest of the world is starving and we're rich and happy. And then he says, maybe the books can get them out of their same way and they won't make the same mistakes. And he wonders how he's going to find real answers. And he remembers a man from the park that he had met earlier. This man had been an English professor until they were no longer needed about 40 years ago. At the park, the man, for some reason, decided to trust Montag, even though he knew he was a fireman. He recited some poetry to him. And Montag knew he was hiding his hiding a book in his jacket pocket. The man says to Montag, I don't talk things, sir. I talk the meaning of things. I sit here and I know I'm alive. And then he gives Montag his address on a slip of paper and says, in case you decide to be angry with me. But Montag tells him that he's not angry. Mildred calls a friend on the phone because she can't handle just sitting there reading books. And Montag goes to his closet and finds that note card with the man's name and phone number. And his name is Faber. And he calls him and asks him how many copies of the Bible, Shakespeare, and Plato are left in the world. And Faber says none and hangs up because obviously he's like, why is he calling me and asking me this? Montag goes back to Mildred and she tells him that her friends are coming over to watch a show. Montag shows her a book and it's a copy of the Old and New Testament. So it's Bible. And... He says it might be the last copy in this part of the world. He contemplates which book to turn into Beatty and wonders if he knows which one he stole that night. Because if he does, and then Montag brings a different book, he's going to know that he has multiple books. And he thinks about who he should get rid of. He's like, should I get rid of Thoreau, Jefferson? Which one is the least valuable? And Mildred starts panicking and asks, are these books more important than me? And um, he decides the only thing he can do is somehow duplicate the book he gives Beatty before giving it to him. He asks Millie if the program that her and her friends are watching later, it's called The White Clown. (laughs) Does The White Clown love you? (laughs) Because she's like, are these books more important than me? Do you love them more than me? And so he asks her the same about that stupid show she's going to watch. And he says, does your family love you? Love you very much with all their heart and soul, Millie? And she's like, why would you ask me a question like that? And he left the house really sad feeling super numb and he takes the subway and he's headed to Faber's house and he wonders if the numbness will ever go away 
he recalls a day at the beach when he was a child. His cousin was like, I'll give you money if you can fill this sieve with sand. And a sieve is like a mesh strainer. So pretty mean thing to do as a cousin, but sounds like something I would do if I had younger cousins that were being annoying. So he's like, I'll give you money if you can fill this with sand. And so he tries and tries, but the sand just falls through. That's how he feels. And he sits on the subway and cries and he's carrying the Bible and he's just carrying it open like in his hands, which is crazy because there's other people on the subway. He held it in his hands and the silly thought came to him. If you read fast and read all, maybe some of the sand will stay in the sieve. But he read and the words fell through and he thought in a few hours there will be Beatty and here will be me handing this over. So he's trying to memorize, he's basically trying to memorize the Bible. And anyway, he tries to focus on retaining every word, but then a toothpaste commercial distracts him. It's like a jingle that he can't get out of his head. And he gets frustrated and he starts yelling, lilies of the field, (laughs) over and over again. Um, And then he stands up and he's, everyone, all the other passengers are like freaking out because he's freaking out and also because he's holding a book. At the next stop, he gets off and runs. Okay, so he gets to Faber's house. And Faber at first is like afraid of him. And then he sees the Bible in his hand, so he lets him in. And Montag tells him that he stole it. And Faber tells him that he's brave. Montag says, no, my wife is dying. A friend of mine is already dead. Someone who may have been a friend was burnt less than 24 hours ago. You're the only one I knew that might help me. And he gives him the book. And Faber flips through it commenting on how he had forgotten how good it was. Faber talks about how the parlor walls have changed the Bible so much that it's unrecognizable. So they've taken bits and pieces of the Bible and kind of turned it into what they want people to get from it. So he's talking, he's feeling guilty. He's always felt guilty because he was what they call an innocent, meaning he hadn't done anything wrong back in the day when they were starting to get rid of books. And he he said that he could have spoken up for the guilty people because he was an innocent. But by, by the time they decided to burn all the books, at that point, he was submissive because there was no one else there to challenge it anymore. And he asks Montag why he came to see him. And Montag says, nobody listens anymore. I can't talk to the walls because they're yelling at me. I can't talk to my wife because she listens to the walls. I just want someone to hear what I have to say. And maybe if I talk long enough, it'll make sense. And I want you to teach me to understand what I read. Faber asks him, like, what happened to you that shook you? Uh, What shook you up? And he says he's not sure. The only thing that he knew was all the books he'd burned. He felt like all of the answer to his unhappiness was in them. Faber calls him a hopeless romantic and says, it's not the books you need, it's some of the things that were once in books. And he says, books were were only one type of receptacle where we stored a lot of things we were afraid we might forget. There was nothing magical in them at all. The magic is only in what books say, how they stitched the patches of the universe together into one garment for us. And Faber tells him that three things are missing in this world. He says, books are important because they have quality. He says quality in texture, pores, features. You can find these in books. The good writers touch life often. And then he says, so now do you see why books are hated and feared? They show they show the bad as well as the good, and people don't want that. 
and Faber likens their world to the story of Hercules um, and Antaeus. I'm probably saying that wrong. Antaeus was a giant wrestler and he was strong as long as his feet were planted firmly on the ground of the earth. But when Hercules picked him up into the air, he was powerless and that's how he died. And he, Faber says this is how the world is now. They're not grounded in the earth at all. And he says that they need quality. So that was the first reason. And then is quality. The second reason he says is leisure. They don't have any time to think. The parlor walls tell you what to think. And they don't give you time to contemplate another answer. So that's the only answer, right? It has to be right. And Montag says that his wife thinks books aren't real. Faber says, thank God books aren't real. Because you can shut them. But he says, who has ever torn himself from the claw that encloses you when you drop a seed in a TV parlor? It's an environment as real as the world. It becomes and is the truth. So with a book, you can close them. They can be beaten down with a reason. You can argue whether or not you believe what they say. But you can't argue with four parlor walls. And Faber points out that he doesn't have any TVs and he wears earplugs on the subway because he doesn't want to hear all the advertisements. And then the third thing he says is the right to carry out actions based on what we learn from the interaction of the first two. So again, number one, quality of information. Number two, leisure to digest it. Number three, the right to carry out actions based on what we learn from the interaction of the first two. Then they're like, where do we go from here? Would books help us? Would they not help us? Montag tells Faber, he's like, I can get books and it's worth the risk to him because he says that's the good part of dying. When you've got nothing to lose, you run any risk you want. So he's like, I can get books. And then he tells him the idea of copying the most important books. So if they do get burned, then they'll have a copy. And Faber tells him, no, he's like, I don't even want to talk to you about this because I could get burned for it. He says the only way he'd be involved is if they could burn the institution of firemen. And Montag is like, all right, let's plant books in firemen's houses and frame them. Faber is like, whoa, dude, I was joking. Montag's like, if you think it will help, then we should do it. Faber points out that when they had books, people still jumped off cliffs. He says the books are to remind us what asses and fools we are. The things you're looking for, Montag, are in the world, but the only way the average chap will ever see 99% of them is in a book. And Montag asks him if he'll help him and if he knows any other professors or historians who could help. He's like, the older the better because then they'll go on detective and Faber agrees it's a good idea. But he says then again, people stopped reading on their own, right? It wasn't the government telling them to stop reading. They did it on their own because they wanted to have fun. And Faber's like, and people are having fun. And Montag's like, yeah, committing suicide and murdering each other. He's like, there has to be someone ready when the world starts falling apart. And Faber says, you're being ridiculous. Books can't save our world. He's also just really scared. He tells Montag to let it go and go home. And Montag asks him if he wants the Bible. And Faber's like, I would give my right arm for that. And Montag starts tearing the book apart. And Faber obviously freaks out and asks him to stop. And he said, he's like, who can stop me? I'm a fireman. I can burn you. Montag's like, you need to teach me. Teach me about books and I'll stop. And Faber agrees. And he says he knows an out-of-work printer who can help. And they can start making copies of books slowly. We might start with a few and wait on the war to break the pattern and give us the push we need. And Montag is scared. He's afraid to go back to work because he is afraid that Beatty will convince him to be like he used to be. And that was only a week ago 
that he was having fun. So he's afraid that if he goes to work, Beatty will make him feel that way again. And he asks Faber, can you help me so I won't lose it? And Faber takes him to his bedroom, shows him something that he's built. So it's a seashell radio headphone. So it's like the headphones, but it's a listening device. So one goes in Montag's ear, one goes in Faber's ear, and Faber can talk to, they can talk to each other and hear what's going on. And he gives the ears to Montag and they test it out. Montag gives him the Bible and decides he's going to give Beatty a different book because the Bible is too important to burn. And the plan is for him to go to work, give Beatty the book, and Faber will help him not forget that he's unhappy, no matter what Beatty says to him. And tomorrow, Faber will take a a bus or a train or whatever to go see the printer. So Montag, on his way back home to get a book, goes to the bank, gets out money for the printer, and Faber is talking to him. Montag realizes in that moment that he's again just doing what people tell him to do and not thinking of his own free will. And he tells Faber that... Faber tells him that the fact that he's even conscious of that means he's already starting to work things out on his own and he just needs to have faith in himself. He says, I don't want to change sides and just be told what to do. There's no reason to change if I do that. So Montag goes home, eats dinner, Mildred's friends come over and go watch the parlor walls. Montag makes small talk with them and this gets pretty crazy. Talking to Faber, he's like, I shouldn't be here. And Faber tries to get him to relax. And he watches the TV and it shows three clowns chopping each other's limbs off, which again is terrifying. And why would you want to watch that? And the program switches to cars crashing into each other while bodies fly in the air. It's all very gruesome. Montag has enough. So he unplugs the TV and all of the women freak out. And he asks them if the, he's like, do you think the war, war will start soon? And asks about where their husbands are. And one of the women, Mrs. Phelps, tells him that their husbands come and go, and that but her husband left yesterday for the war, but the army says he'll be back in a week because it'll be a quick 48-hour war. And she's not worried about him. And then she says, plus it's always other people's husbands who die in the war. I've never known any dead man killed in a war. Killed jumping off buildings, yes, like Gloria's husband last week, but from wars, no. She says, anyway, Pete and I always said, no tears, nothing like that. It's our third marriage each, and we're independent. He said, if I get killed off, you just go right ahead and don't cry, but get married again and don't think of me. And Montag, I mean, how can you hear that and not be sad? But he he knows they want him to leave so they can turn the TVs back on. Instead, he asks how their kids are. And Mrs. Phelps gets angry because he knows she doesn't have any kids. She's like, who in their right mind would have kids? But Mrs. Bowles, the other woman there, disagrees because she has two children by C-section, obviously, because who would ruin their bodies for a baby? That is basically what she says. Mrs. Phelps and her start arguing about kids. Phelps says that children are ruinous, but Mrs. Bowles says that her kids are gone most of the month at school. She just shoves them into the parlor when they're home, so she doesn't ever really have to deal with them. Which is sad and sounds a lot like iPads and movies and stuff today and Mildred is like let's talk politics because she's trying to please Montag and uh, change the subject so they talk about who how they voted for President Noble his name is literally President Noble because he's handsome that's why they voted for him they voted for him because he's handsome and the guy who ran against him was small and homely which is gross they say, they're talking, they're just like, you can't run a small man against a tall man. Plus, he mumbled all the time. We couldn't understand what he was saying. Which, obviously, the government did this on purpose. Remember how they said, don't give them two sides to choose from. 
So they literally put up Winston Noble versus Hubert Hogue. Come on. So Montag, uh, when they're talking about it, he loses it. And he goes and gets a book and he brings it into the parlor and tells them it's poetry. And Faber's in his ear and he's like, dude, don't do this. And Montag is like, can you not hear them talking? They're monsters. And he says, the way they jabber about people and their own children and themselves, the way they talk about their husbands and the way they talk about war, I can't believe it. And the women are like probably freaking out because they think he's going insane talking to himself. And they try to leave, but Montag won't let them. And Faber's like, if you read this, if you read to these women, I'm out. Like, I'm not doing this anymore. Played off as a joke. Go to the incinerator, throw the book in. And Mildred, because she's smart, already anticipated this. And she tells the women, she's like, once a year, a fireman is allowed to bring a book home and read it to show how ridiculous it is so that they won't want to bother with books. And Montag's like, yeah, she's right. She, he agrees with her. And that was a good save, Mildred. She picks a poem for him to read. It's called Dover Beach. And he reads it out loud to them. And when he finishes it, Mrs. Phelps is crying. The other women tell her they like snap out of it, but she can't. And she doesn't know why she's crying, but she's crying. Mrs. Bowles is pissed, saying that she always knew poetry led to suicide. And here's proof because Mrs. Phelps is crying. She says she's going home and Montag goes off on her and he says, go home and think of your first husband divorced and your second husband killed in a jet and your third husband blowing his brains out. Go home and think of the dozen abortions you've had. Go home and think that and your damned C-sections too and your children who hate your guts. Go home and think how it all happened and what did you ever do to stop it? So then they leave. Mildred goes to bed, takes some sleeping pills to numb the pain, numb the sadness And Montag finds the books behind the refrigerator and notices that Mildred had already started burning a few. He goes out in the backyard and hides the books in a bush and goes to work. And as he goes, he thinks about how he's so much like Faber already. Faber's in his ear talking to him, just like so mad at him for what he did. He's like, you have to be calm, tiptoe around Beatty, make sure you aren't caught. Montag says that he feels guilty for making those women sad. He's like, maybe they're right. Maybe you just run and you have fun and you don't think about your problems. And Faber says, he's like, you can't go back to thinking that way. The world is so messed up. And I'm going to read this little pep talk that he gives to Montag. It's on page 104. He says, listen, easy now. I know, I know you're afraid of making mistakes. Don't be. Mistakes can be profited by. Man, when I was younger, I shoved my ignorance in people's faces. They beat me with sticks. By the time I was 40, my blunt instrument had been honed to a fine cutting point for me. If you hide your ignorance, no one will hit you and you'll never learn. Now pick up your feet into the firehouse with you. We're twins. We're not alone anymore. We're not separated out in different parlors with no contact between. If you need help when Beatty pries at you, I'll be sitting right here in your eardrum making notes. And Montag says, old man, stay with me as he walks into the firehouse. So he goes in the firehouse, gives Beatty the book, and without even looking at the book, Beatty throws it in the trash bin and burns it. And he's like, welcome back. And they sit down to play poker. And Montag sits there playing and feeling guilty. And he worries that Beatty will see him for what he is. Beatty says, all is well. And that they've all strayed at some point or another. And then he quotes Alexander Pope. And he says, words are like leaves. And where they must abound, much fruit of sense beneath is rarely found. He's like, Montag, what do you think of that? Montag says he doesn't 
no. And Faber's like, be careful, man. Beatty quotes an essay about learning and Montag says nothing. So Beatty says that he had a dream that they were arguing about books and Faber warns Montag that Beatty's trying to get a reaction out of him and like he's trying to confuse him. At one point, Beatty says, what traitors books can be? You think they're backing you up and they turn on you. Others can use them too. And there you are, lost in the middle of the moor in a great welter of nouns and verbs and adjectives. Montag's like trying to hold it together and Beatty can sense that he's panicked and he likes it. So he keeps going and Faber's like, just hold on, like don't freak out. But Beatty goes on and when he finally stops, Faber is in Montag's ear talking softly to him about how it'll be okay and after tonight he can decide for himself what he wants to believe about the world. And he says, but remember, remember that the captain belongs to the most dangerous enemy to truth and freedom, the solid unmoving cattle of the majority. And just then the alarm rings and Beatty takes down the address from the phone. He tells Montag this is a special case and they go down the pole and get into the truck Apparently, Beatty never drives the truck, but he was driving tonight. And he says, here we go to keep the world happy, Montag. And he pulls over and says that they've arrived at the house. And Montag is looking down and he's thinking about how he can't go in there. But he finally looks up at the house and Beatty says, is something wrong? And Montag says, we've stopped in front of my house. And that's the end of part two. Okay, part three is called Burning Bright. And so we ended part one with the fire truck pulling out in front of Montag's house. So they're sitting out in the truck. Neighbors are coming out of their houses to see what's going on. And Beatty tells Montag, he says, you flew too close to the sun, which is a reference to Icarus from Greek mythology. And basically the story is that his father gave him wings in order to escape Crete, but he warned him against complacency and pridefulness. And Icarus flew too high and his wax wings melted and he fell into the sea and drowned. So he flew too close to the sun, meaning he, he, got, he got too prideful, right? So Beatty asks him, how did you not get the hint that this was going to happen after I sent the hound to your house? And he starts taunting him about Clarice and saying that she fooled him. Mildred comes out of the house and she's got a suitcase in her hands and she runs to a taxi that's waiting for her in the street and leaves. And as she gets in the car, Montag calls to her and realizes that she must have been the person to call in the alarm, which is so sad. Faber is talking in Montag's ear. He's like, what's going on? And Montag out loud says, he's like, it's happening to me. How is this happening to me? And Beatty replies, he says, what a dreadful surprise for everyone nowadays knows absolutely certain that nothing will ever happen to me. Others die, I go on. There are no consequences and no responsibilities except that there are. But let's not talk about them, eh? By the time the consequences catch up with you, it's too late. And this is what those women were talking about. Remember, they said, but it's never my husband to die in the war. It's always somebody else's husband that dies in the war. Faber's like, can you run away? Like, can you get away? And Beatty starts talking to him about what makes fire so beautiful. Its real beauty is that it destroys responsibility and consequences. A problem gets too burdensome, then into the furnace with it. Now, Montag, you are a burden, and fire will lift you off my shoulders. Clean, quick, sure. Nothing to rot later. Montag looks at his house, and he sees the firemen have found the books and thrown them on the ground, which means that Mildred must have seen him hide the books out back and brought them back inside. 
and then called the alarm. And Beatty tells Montag, he's like, I want you to be the one to burn this house. And gives him the flamethrower. Faber asks again, he's like, can you run away? And Montag's like, no, there's like, I can't run away. The hound will get me. And Montag starts the flamethrower and lights his house on fire. And he burnt everything. As he's burning, he's thinking and it says he burned everything because he wanted to change everything. Everything that showed that he had lived here in this empty house with a strange woman who would forget him tomorrow, who had gone and quite forgotten him already. He realizes as he's burning, he says it was good to burn. He felt himself gush out the fire and put away the senseless problem. If there was no solution, well, now there was no problem either. Fire was best for everything. So he, it's getting into his head again. And Beatty tells him when he's finished, he's like, he's like, okay, when you're quite finished with this, you're under arrest. And after he burned everything, Montag was still holding the flamethrower and he asks Beatty if Mildred was the one who called in the alarm. And Beatty says, yes, she was, but her friends had called it in earlier too. But they waited for Montag to get there and they wanted his wife to call because they suck. Anyway, and Beatty's like, you're an idiot for reading poetry to them. It was the act of a silly damn snob. Give a man a few lines of verse and he thinks he's the lord of all creation. You think you can walk on water with your books. Well, the world can get by just fine without them. And Beatty's like, why did you do it? And then he hits him. And when he hits him, this seashell headphone thing comes out of his ear. And Beatty picks it up, hears Faber talking, and puts it in his pocket. And he's like, I'm going to trace this back to your friend and I promise I'll get him too. Montag gets up, still holding the flamethrower, and he turns off the safety switch. And Beatty watches him do it. And initially he's shocked. He, you, can, you can like see it in his face that he's shocked, but he covers it up with a smile. And he's like, all right, Montag, let's hear your big speech. Because he thinks he's going to give him a speech and he starts provoking him. And he takes a step forward. Montag says, we never burned right. And Beatty's like, hand over the flamethrower. But he's still like taunting him. He says a bunch of things provoking him. And then Montag pulls the trigger and Beatty goes up in flames. He's just like running around screaming in flames. And then he finally dies. And Montag turns to the other two firemen that were there. And he's like, turn around. And he hits them both in the head and knocks them out. And he turns to leave his house. But the hound is there, obviously. And so him and the hound start fighting. The hound's trying to stab him with his creepy needle that comes out of his body. And Montag's trying to set it on fire. The hound stabs his Montag's leg, but only a tiny bit. So only a little bit of whatever poison is in him got into him. And Montag uses the flamethrower to like force him off of him and launches him into the air. And he falls on the ground and he, I guess, dies. Even though he's a robot, he like dies. Montag tries to get up, but his leg is super numb. And when he puts weight on it, it feels like there's a million needles stabbing in his leg. And he's obviously trying to get away quickly because the lights are coming on in the houses again. People are watching. But he he slowly gets up and slowly drags his foot as he walks to the alley in his backyard. He talks to himself. (laughs) He says, Beatty, you're not a problem now. You always said, don't face a problem. Burn it. So he starts trying to escape, but he's thinking, he's like, if we have to burn, let's take a few more with us. And he turns back to see if Mildred had missed any of the books. And he found four books hiding in the bushes behind his house. 
and he hops along and as he does he realizes that Beatty wanted to die he says he just stood there not really trying to save himself just stood there joking needling how strange to want to die so much that you let a man walk around armed and then instead of shutting up and staying alive you go on yelling at people and making fun of them until you get them mad and then dot 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 so he's he realizes Beatty wanted to die which is interesting and Beatty's an interesting character because I don't totally understand him and I think it's interesting that he is clearly very well read most interactions we have with him include him quoting at least one thing from a book so I like to imagine that he used to love books and something happened and he hated them which is which is interesting because in the afterword of the book and don't get this mixed up with the summary because this is something totally different but They did a play about Fahrenheit 451 and they wrote new scenes for it about Beatty and some other characters. And it, in the play, it reveals that Beatty actually has a full library at his house, but that he doesn't read them anymore. And therefore it's not illegal because he's not reading them. And anyway, he talks to Montag and says that, you know, all these things happened to me. There were deaths, there was war, there was murder. And I looked to books to find answers and they didn't have any. And so he gave up on them, basically. Which, again, don't mix that up with the book because that didn't happen in the book. But Ray Bradbury writes about that in the afterword, saying that that happens in the play. And he doesn't specify if that's how he felt about Beatty. But in my opinion, Beatty's more complex than just a fire chief. He was very well read. And I think that he, at one point in his life, really loved books. Okay, moving on. So Montag's still running away. He thinks about Faber and Beatty, and he says to himself, you must remember, burn them or they'll burn you. Right now, it's as simple as that. So he's running away. He still has the money in his pocket and the seashell radio, and so he puts it in his ear and he listens. He can hear the police talking about him, and he gets to this highway that's 10 lanes, and he backs up into the trees and is thinking about how he's going to cross this street without anybody seeing him because nobody just walks, right? So if he's alone walking, people are going to know that it's him. He realizes that he's been heading to Faber's house instinctively. He looks at the sky, he sees the helicopters, which are pretty cool because they can fly in the air and then when they want to land, they turn into a car and just like keep driving. Anyway, he's watching at this gas station nearby. There's only a couple people in there. So he sneaks in the back door and goes into the bathroom to clean himself up. And he hears the radio in the gas station and it says, war has been declared. He doesn't really think much about it like always when something about the war is talked about, but he walks back outside to the highway and he thinks about how long it's going to take him to get to the other side. And he sees headlights a few blocks away. And honestly, like, why wouldn't you just... (laughs) Why wouldn't you just wait until there were no cars? But maybe there's always cars. I don't know. But he thinks about how long it will take him to get across. He can't run because that's suspicious. So he has to walk leisurely across and it will take him about 40 seconds. He thinks about the car that's coming and he's like, if he speeds up, then he could be caught. So he starts walking across the road when he hears the car speed pick up. The car headlights land on him. And he assumes it's the police and tries not to panic. And the car is probably, he, he assumes it's up to 130 miles per hour by now coming after him. 
And Montag finally starts running as the car gets closer and he falls onto the ground right as the car gets to him. But right then the car swerves away and drives on. And he gets up, sees the car down the street and sees that it was a bunch of kids. And they must have seen him and decided to get him, not knowing that he was fugitive. So he realizes that they would have killed him for no reason at all. But he fell. That's why they'd swerved because the driver realized that running over a human at that speed would have flipped their car. And so the fact that he fell saved him because otherwise they would have just killed him because I guess that's what teenagers do in this world. So he picks up the books that he dropped and he finishes crossing the street. But he doesn't go straight to Faber's house. He stops at Mr. Black's house and he is a fellow fireman and he sneaks in the back door and plants books in his kitchen And he says to himself and in his mind to Mrs. Black, his wife, he says, this isn't good, but your husband did it to others and never asked and never wondered and never worried. And now since you're a fireman's wife, it's your house and your turn for all the houses your husband burnt and the people he hurt without thinking. And then he goes to a random phone booth and calls the alarm and listens as the sirens drive towards that house. And then he goes to Faber's house. He gets there. Faber lets him in. He talks. He tells him what happened, that he killed Captain Beatty, that he ran away. And he starts to panic, wondering how it got to this and how just a few days ago he was fine and now he's drowning. He apologizes to Faber for bringing him into this because now they're probably going to come for him. And Faber tells him that he feels alive for the first time in years. Montag tells him that he plans to keep on running and he gives him some of the money to use for the printer that he's going to go see. Faber plans to leave on the 5 a.m. bus to St. Louis to see his friend. And he tells him that he should go down to the river and follow the railroad tracks because there's rumored that there's a community of homeless people. And he says they say there's a lot of Harvard degrees on the tracks between here and Los Angeles. So they want to know what's happening outside. And so Faber shows him that he has a TV the size of a picture frame because he he doesn't like the parlor walls. So they turn it on. He sees that the police have brought in another hound from a different district. And they say the hound never fails and that its nose is so sensitive it can remember remember and identify 10,000 odor indexes on 10,000 men. And so they start looking around the house and they look at all the things that Montag has touched and that everything now smells like him. They watch the news and they see the hound come out of the helicopter They give him the flamethrower that has his scent on it and he starts hunting him. And Montag tells Faber to burn everything that he touched in the house, wipe down the furniture and the doorknobs with alcohol, turn on the AC, turn on the sprinklers and just try to drown out his scent. And then he gets a suitcase full of Faber's oldest and dirtiest clothes, the ones that smell like Faber. And he takes that suitcase and a bottle of whiskey and he runs out the back door. And he runs to the river as fast as he can He stops to catch his breath and he looks through a window and sees people watching their parlor walls and sees where the hound is. And he sees the hound get to the alley by Faber's house and he watches as the hound pauses, looks at Faber's house and finally turns away and keeps running. Faber's safe. Montag starts running again, puts a seashell in his ear so he can hear the police. The police at that time on the news tell the entire population of Elm Terrace, which I guess is where he lives, to open their doors and look outside because someone is bound to see him. And they start a countdown from 10 and Montag is like in their backyard. So he's running as fast as he can past the last few houses and gets to the trees just as people open their doors. He goes into the river and takes off his clothes and lets them float down the river. 
and he washes himself with whiskey trying to get rid of his scent and then he puts on Faber's old clothes and he swims into the middle of the river and just like kind of floats as it takes him downstream. The hound gets to the river when Montag is like 300 yards downstream and he runs away from the river as if he smells Montag going a different way. And so Montag's like, all right, I'm gone. Like I I made it out. And he floats down the river for a really long time. He thinks about all the things he's burned in his life. And he says, the sun burnt every day. It burnt time. The world rushed in a circle and turned on its axis. And time was busy burning the years and the people anyway, without any help from him. So if he burnt things with the firemen and the sun burnt time, that meant that everything burnt. One of them had to stop burning. It had to be Montag and the people. He's in the river for a long time and finally it pushes him towards shore and he gets out and he's afraid that the hound is there, but he's not. And he listens, but he hears nothing. It's just silence. And he thinks about his wife and how she would hate the silence. He thinks about Clarice and he sees a farm and thinks about the time when he was a child and he visited a farm. Anyway, he, he imagines himself going to the farm and falling asleep on some hay in the barn and looking in the window and seeing Clarice braiding her hair and in the morning he would wake up and they would have like put food out for him. Anyway, he gets out of the river, realizes how much land there is and he hears something behind him and he looks to see two eyes staring at him and he thinks that it's a hound but it ends up just being a deer. He looks around, he just walks a little way from the river and he runs into the railroad tracks and so he starts walking down the tracks He walks for about 30 minutes and then he sees a fire up ahead and he walks slowly to it and he realizes it's not like a fire that's burning things, it's a fire for warming. And there's people gathered around it with their hands reaching out towards the fire to get warm. And he had never known that a fire could look this way. He stands back and observes them for a while and then hears them talking. The narrator says, the voices talked of everything. There was nothing they could not talk about. He knew from the very cadence and motion and continual stir of curiosity and wonder in them. And finally, one of the men calls out to him and he says, you're welcome here. And Montag walks over and they greet him. They offer him coffee and he notices that they're all wearing denim jackets and denim pants. One man says, you're welcome, Montag. My name's Granger. And he says, gives him this liquid and tells him to drink it and says it will change the chemical index of his perspiration and then he'll, he won't smell like himself anymore. So Montag drinks it and asks how they know his name. They said they've been watching the chase and figured he'd turn up around here sometime. Granger says that the chase is still going on, but it's going in the other direction and they have like a portable TV that they've been watching. Anyway, Granger says that the police are faking it because they can't admit that they lost him at the river. So they're faking it and they'll catch Montag soon, which they'll catch like a guy that's not Montag, but they'll say that it's Montag because they can't be caught not succeeding in this chase. So they watch as the camera shoots down a long street and Granger says, see that? It'll be you. Right up at the end of the street is our victim. See how our camera is coming in, building the scene, suspense, long shot. Right now, some poor fellow is out for a walk, a rarity, an odd one. Don't think the police don't know the habits of queer ducks like that. Men who walk mornings for the hell of it or for reasons of insomnia. Anyway, the police have had him charted for months, years. Never know when that sort of information might be handy. And today, it turns out it's very usable indeed. It saves face. So they watch the TV 
as a man walks around the corner and the hound smelt sees him or whatever and someone yells, there's Montag, the search is done. And the hound jumps on him and kills this man. The TV news says Montag is dead, a crime against society has been avenged. They turn the TV off and Granger points out how they never focused on this man's face and it could have been Montag, right? But Montag's in shock and so Granger changes the subject, introduces them. There's a few men around the fire. He says one of them was a former occupant of the Thomas Hardy chair at Cambridge before it became an atomic engineering school. Another man was a professor at UCLA. Another was a professor of ethics at Columbia. And then there's a reverend and Granger himself is an author of a book called The Fingers in the Glove, The Proper Relationship Between the Individual and Society. Montag realizes that he doesn't really belong there, but Granger assures him that he does and asks him what he has to offer. Montag's like, well, I memorized part of the book of Ecclesiastes and a little bit of Revelation. Granger tells him to hold on to that for when they need it, but Montag tells him that he's already forgotten. And Granger tells him, not, he's like, don't try to remember it. It'll come when we need it. All of us have photographic memories, but spend a lifetime learning how to block off the things that are really in there. We've got a method down to where we can recall anything that's been read once. And that sounds amazing. And I wish that that were true. I wish we did all have photographic memories because that would be insane. So Granger tells him that he himself is Plato's Republic. Mr. Simmons is Marcus Aurelius. And he goes on naming all the things that people have memorized. There's, we, they have Gulliver's Travels, Charles Darwin, Einstein, Gandhi, Jefferson, Lincoln, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Granger says a lot on the next couple pages, and I'm just going to quickly tell you like bullet points of what he says. So he says, they burn books too. They read them and then they burn them so they don't get caught. Their way is simple and effective. They just want to keep the knowledge that they need intact. And they're careful because if they are destroyed, so is their knowledge. They walk the tracks and sometimes they're searched by the police, but they don't find anything on them because they burn their own books. Some of them have changed their faces and fingerprints through surgery so they don't get caught. They're waiting for the war to end because then maybe they can be of some use in the world. He says if people don't listen, they'll keep waiting. They'll pass their knowledge on to their children. You can't make people listen, he says. There are thousands of people like them on the road and railroad tracks. He says there are bums on the outside and libraries on the inside. Each man has a book he wanted to remember, so he did. And over 20 years, they met each other and formed a network of people. And the most important thing they have to remember is that they are not important or superior to anyone. He says, we're nothing more than dust jackets for books. And then he says on page 153, and when the war's over, someday, some year, the books can be written again. The people will be called in one by one to recite what they know and we'll set it up in type until another dark age when we might have to do the whole damn thing again. But that's the wonderful thing about man. He never gets so discouraged or disgusted that he gives up doing it all over again because he knows very well it is important and worth the doing. They put the fire out and they start moving downstream again, further away from the city. Granger says the city has never cared enough about any of them to put on that elaborate of a chase to find them. Montag studies the men's faces as they walk downstream. And he expected to see light in their faces or triumph, but these men seemed no different than any others to him. Montag keeps looking at them, studying their faces, and one of the men says, don't judge a book by its cover, and they all laugh. 
Montag and Granger are talking and Montag tells him that his wife is back in the city. He's like, there must be something wrong with me because I don't think I'll feel sadness at all if she dies. And Granger tells Montag about his grandfather who was kind and did a lot for his community in the world. And when he died, Granger realized that he wasn't crying for him, but for all the things he had done and would never do again. He was part of us, and when he died, all the actions stopped dead, and there was no one to do them just the way he did. He was individual. He was an important man. I've never gotten over his death. He shaped the world. He did things to the world. The world was bankrupt for 10 million fine actions the night he died. Montag thinks about how Millie had done nothing in her life, and... And he thinks to himself that the only thing he gave the city was ashes. Granger's grandfather told him that everyone must leave something when they die. And Granger says, something your hand touched some way so your soul has somewhere to go when you die. And when people look at that tree or that flower you planted, you're there. It doesn't matter what you do so long as you change something. And he goes on about his grandfather and he told him to live as if you'll drop dead in 10 seconds. Don't sleep your life away. And just then the war begins and they hear as a bomb hits the city. Montag and his new friends hit the ground and they're stuck there shouting and waiting it out. And Montag thinks about Faber and Mildred and wishes he could tell them to run. But he realizes that Faber is already out of the city on a train to another city that won't be there when he arrives. And he thinks about Mildred somewhere in her hotel room watching the parlor walls and not knowing that the bomb is coming. And he imagines Mildred's last few moments and he finally remembers where they met. And they met in Chicago 10 years ago. And he remembered something else while he's lying there too. And it was the part of Ecclesiastes in Revelation that he had memorized. And he said it over and over to himself until the words were perfect. Montag thinks about where to go from here and he realizes that it doesn't really matter he says we'll just start walking today and see the world and the way the world walks around and talks the way it really looks finally it all dies away and they're left in silence and they slowly get up granger looks down the river at the city and he says that it's flat and he says the city looks like a heap of baking powder it's gone and they wonder how many other cities are gone now and they start a fire and they cook some bacon over it and granger tells montag about the animal the phoenix he says there was a silly damn bird called a phoenix back before christ every few hundred years he built a pyre and burnt himself up he must have been first cousin to man but every time he burned himself up he sprang out of the ashes he got himself born all over again And it looks like we're doing the same thing over and over, but we've got one damn thing the phoenix never had. We know the damn silly thing we just did. We know all the damn silly things we've done for a thousand years, and as long as we know that and always have it around where we can see it, someday we'll stop making the goddamn funeral pyres and jumping in the middle of them. We pick up a few more people that remember every generation. And that's on page 163. But they get up and they start walking upstream. Granger tells him, tells them to remember that they're not important. You're not important. You're not anything. Someday the load we're carrying with us may help someone. But even when we had the books on hand a long time ago, we didn't use what we got out of them. And he goes on to tell them that they'll meet a lot of people who are going to ask them what they're doing. And they'll say, we are remembering. And they walk in silence up the river. And Montag knows that they'll start talking at some point. So he tries to think of what he can say and what he can contribute. And he decides to recite a part of Ecclesiastes. To everything there is a season, a time to break down, and a time to build up, 
a time to keep silence and a time to speak. And on either side of the river was there a tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's the end, guys. End of the book. So themes. Like I said before, censorship is not the main theme, but it is one of the themes. So obviously this world censors books, but more important than that is what happens when a culture stops reading. And Bradbury describes a world in this book where people stopped reading on their own accord. And he watches as people start listening to the radio and headphones and watching TV and not paying attention to to each other. That's what he was starting to see in the 1950s when he wrote this book. And if, if he could only see our world now. The other theme, the more important theme, is the importance of thinking and reading. In this book, Bradbury is warning us against becoming complacent and not interacting with others or spending time reading and thinking. Remember in the book, they say, you don't have to burn books to destroy a culture. Just get people to stop reading them. Remember that the government in this book did not ban books. The people did. They decided that they were false, that they were not important, and they contained lies that confused people, so they burned them. And this censorship that the people brought on, it all started with people being offended. Groups of people being offended by a book or a passage and tearing it out completely. And this went on until all the different groups tore out a page and all the pages were gone. And then books ceased to exist. The government just took that and was like, all right, like we can distract you. We can make you feel like you're happy. The mass media is there for entertainment. And the people in this world need to be constantly entertained so that they don't have time to think about their lives or their sadness. And the government can control the people through the media. So that's pretty much it. We finished Fahrenheit 451. I hope you guys get an A. Go follow Brief Podcast on Instagram right now so that you can know when we post new books. And also send your syllabi to our email, hello at briefpodcast.com, so that we know what books you need briefed.